Let us turn now to the scripture reading, which is, uh, which comes to us from First Kings, not uh, eighteen. First Kings chapter eighteen, verse thir- verses thirty to forty. First, first Kings eighteen thirty through forty. Beginning to read with verse thirty. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And then he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, Fill four water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, He also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I I have done all these things in your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that the people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God! The Lord, he is God! And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. The the title of the message this morning is Baal Worshippers Carmelized. Now they're meeting on Mount Carmel. That's where where these events happen. And... um, you know, when we caramelize things, or when you're making caramel, you take, you start out with a lot of independent grains of sugar, and you apply heat to them, and you slowly, so you don't burn the caramel, or burn the sugar, but you do it slowly, and you put some butter in and some things like this, and uh, the, the heat ultimately totally melts or, or dissolves, the grains of sugar, so that what was standing there before, that the ingredients that were there before are no longer there. And you have a, a brand new thing. Well, using that process here is kind of a colorful way to talk about what happened here on Mount Carmel with the, uh, with the sacrifice that Elijah had established. We're going to be looking at that. And, and what we see is that the that periodically God displays his pure wrath and justice to warn the world. Um, yet, as, as it happened here in Israel at this time, our instincts 
are so dull as to, to nullify these things. God had done great works before this when the people crossed out of Egypt to come into the promised land. And yet we so quickly forget these demonstrations, these great divine demonstrations of God's power, and we fall back into the routine religion or the routines of our lives that, that so often just take us along step by step, apparently, to nowhere. Very often we get sidetracked. We just don't, our attention does not keep, sharply keep itself upon the, the, the Lord and his mission. The fact that he has sent us into this world to overcome the world and to, to overwhelm the world with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These things seem momentous, especially on Sunday morning, sometimes when we preach about them, but how long do they remain in our minds? And so here we have an occasion where God had one of these unbelievable, fantastic demonstrations of his power. In this case, it can be seen as fairly negative by the world, by those who erect uh, false ethical principles. They would probably attack uh, Elijah here and the, even the account in the scriptures as an account of cruelty, not showing the proper affection for mankind that, they, that we ought to show. But of course, the, the principles that they've erected are anti-Christ principles. They are anti-God principles. And so their principles of justice are no principles at all. They're principles of Satan and uh, anti-Christ and Satanism. And so, but uh, nonetheless, we have this fantastic tale uh, spread before us here today. And um, it, is, uh, it is marvelous uh, to our eyes. Now, if we take this uh, step by step, we, we see three ingredients here to what happened uh, to, uh, on this occasion. Three ingredients. The first was the rebuilding of the ruined altar, verse 30. Uh, the second is the, um, the counterintuitive measures taken by Elijah before the sacrifice that ostensibly he wants to burn. He wants the fire to light the sacrifice these counterintuitive measures, and then lastly, uh, there's a petitionary prayer that Elijah lifts up before the Lord. And at the end of that prayer, then, there are these great, these two effects that take place, namely the, um, the, con the consumption of the sacrifice on the altar and then the consumption of the Baal priest. So let's look at these first three things. First of all, when we see in verse 30, <clears throat> It says, Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So the people came near and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Now in um, the next chapter, chapter 19, verse 14, we find out Elijah there in a prayer. He, he remarks about how, on how the people, the, the people of the Northern Ten Tribes had pulled down these altars. These altars had been built at earlier times by Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, especially Jacob here at Bethel. And they had been built, they had been constructed, they memorialized God's walking with his people, God's meeting his people here at Bethel, God's helping his people uh, to, to see uh, ladders into heaven and promises of the future and these kinds of things. And so altars had been set up here. But the people uh, grew weary of thinking about the Lord. They grew weary of giving him their heartfelt uh, obedience and certainly their allegiance and their love. And so uh, incidentally, incrementally, clandestinely perhaps, 
they would work and they would they would pull these altars down. The people of this world cannot stand memorials or signs that point to the true God. And so they work. <coughs> Here in America, there have been many, uh, uh, many uh, statues that have been pulled down in the last few years. Ostensibly, they say, well, it's because of anti-slavery, this or that. My own suspicion is that it wasn't the faults of these men that have so energized people against them, but it was their virtues. These, because many of these people uh, represented either, either emotionally and individually themselves or, or else collectively, they, they represent uh, something of the kingdom of God as it, as it began to be manifested more and more in the world, and especially here in the new world. And so uh, a lot of uh, biblical ideas took root here in America. And if we want to see, if we want to ask why, why has God prospered us so much here in America unto this day, it's because of these benefits that he's given to us and because of the memorials and the, the credit and the honor that earlier people here in America gave to him. We're not discounting their sins or the fact that their, their memorials weren't perfect. But it's not the imperfect, again, it's not the imperfections that so agitate people today. It's the fact that they, um, that they um, uh, represented in many ways touchstones to the past, touchstones to what we used to call Christendom, to Western Christendom. And uh, remarkably here in the West, starting in Europe and spreading to America here, there were many people who were caught up with the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, our pilgrim forefathers, the effort to settle America in, in, at its core. It was a desire to, to erect a better city of God here in this world. And it's that that so many people uh, work against. So here we see uh, that the same thing was going on in Israel except that the, the causes or the identifications were even more clear because they were done by the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Their travels throughout the Middle East here, and uh, there oftentimes they would, they would find themselves there at Bethel and uh, where God had delivered them and given them great signs of deliverance. And so they built uh, altars there, a number of altars uh, there in, in Bethel to memorialize the fact that God was with them. These had been torn down. So the first thing that Elijah did on this occasion was he rebuilt the altar that had been there before. Uh, Elijah had an interest in the things that had gone before. He had an interest in the things of the Lord, the truth of God, and especially the memorials that, that signaled that the people of God had been here at one time and they had served the Lord. So he rebuilt the altars. And so, so it's not a bad thing for us, wherever we are in this world, to... to uh, uh, set up new memorials, as it were, to the Lord, to, to not only say these things to people, but to, uh, to signal them by the way we live our lives and the, the things that we construct, something of the goodness of God. When we build a nation, when we build a family, we need to say that the, the, the secret to this family is the living God. The good things that you see in our family are not because of my wife or me or our uh, inspiration that's come out of ourselves. The reason that uh, if you see any virtue in us, it's because of the living God and what he has done in our lives. And so that's a good thing. Now, the second thing that Elijah does on this occasion 
are these counterintuitive measures that we see in verse 32. Now, ostensibly, he is all he's already challenged the Baal worshippers to, to light their fire. If you remember in the previous scriptures. And uh, they they built their fires and they did this and that, but uh, uh, the, the, their, the God of Baal was impotent. He never, the, the fires never fell from the heavens based upon their prayers and their efforts. Everything they did was to set up a, a good sacrifice, an effective sacrifice that would, that when the, when the fires from heavens fell, that that fire would be lit. Well, here we see Elijah doing exactly the opposite. If you want to get a fire going, you don't put water on it once, twice, and three times, but that's what Elijah does. I remember one time I was a Boy Scout, uh, and it was a really, we were out on a da- very damp weekend, and uh, we had to get a fire going in the morning. We were sleeping at night, had to get a fire going in the morning, and um, I knew one of the things that I'd been taught was that uh, birch bark, the, the kind of the fluffy stuff you can peel off a birch tree, that that will burn even if it's wet. But so I, I, I went out I, for the, for our fire in the morning. I gathered some birch bark and uh, I put it in a cloth bag and I put took it into my sleeping bag with me. I thought I'm going to dry this out tonight, even though it will burn without this process. But it's even going to burn re- more ready if I do this. And so I dried the stuff. I did the very opposite that Elijah did. I got, I got the tinder and I dried it out so that uh, it would be ready to start that fire in the morning. Elijah does just the opposite. And not just once, but three times. He takes these huge uh, vessels of water. He pours them on the other. He'd already dug a trench around the stones to, to, to gather the water together and, uh, uh, or anything that, was any, anything that came off the altar. And uh, so the, there was so much water that it filled up this trench around the altar. And uh, the fire, he had done everything in human terms to quench the fire that would fall from heaven so that there would be no mistaking the fact that when God's fire fell, they, people would know that it was the Lord. Now, the people are watching this, you see. The people of Israel, they're watching this. They've never seen any prophet, any priest, pour water on the sacrifice before and all the wood so that it, it would be the a very opposite of uh, easy to burn. Normally, the priests would bring uh, fuel for the fires that would would be readily burn, and then they'd burn the sacrifice that way, the burnt offerings, to signify the God's sacrifice for them and their sin. So on this occasion, uh, Elijah does just the opposite. And uh, uh, all of this stuff is just looks like it's never going to burn at all. And then in verse 36, uh, Elijah lifts up this prayer. Uh, it's not enough that he, uh, that he prepares the, the sacrifice, but he sees the real power in prayer. He knows because he's a prophet of God, God has revealed this to him already, what, what is to be done. But Elijah still believes in the power of prayer. And so he begins to pray in verse 36. And uh, uh, he prays, it was at the time of the offering and the evening sacrifice so that God used the, the, typical, uh, the typical schedule of the Israelites on this occasion. It was near the time of the, sacri- the evening sacrifice. And, and Elijah prays, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Now the people had not been turned yet back to the Lord. The people's hearts had grown dull. That was why they were so ready to support Jeroboam and his rebellion. The people were confused. They no longer saw that, that great and shining light that pointed at Israel as being the people of God, that pointed to Israel as being the beachhead, uh, commandeered by uh, divine troops to take over the whole world for him. Remember, that's the, that's the design of the kingdom of God. Israel, the, the, Israel was a place, but it was only a preparatory place for the rest of the world. God was going to work out his kingdom there, but then he was going to take that kingdom, and what we see happen in the New Testament is that kingdom begins to spread beyond this beachhead into the rest of the world. And that's where we are today here in southwestern Ohio, far, far away from the land of Israel and Palestine. And so <clears throat> uh, um, Elijah prays that God would open the windows of heaven and come down and, uh, and burn the sacrifice and show the people that he indeed was God. Now you, know, you notice, here's the point of the prayer, that they would know that Jehovah was God. That's the whole issue here. Who is the Lord? When, when Moses was in Egypt and God was instructing him on what he should do to free the people there from their, from their Egyptian captors, all of the things that God tells him to do, he, he always adds this, that they may know the purpose of, of, the, of the miracles that he brought to pass there was that they might know that I am the Lord. God is very concerned. God is jealous. Uh, God, his energy is focused on making his name, the name that this world <coughs> recognizes. Many of the Psalms, Psalm 47, uh, calls out for all the nations of the world, all the peoples of the world. Some people think that it's only Israel or just the church that are under the obligations of the Lord. Psalms like 47, 67, uh, Psalm 110, they all show that the demands of God are upon all men as creations of God. Not just as they were called at one time or another in history like the Israelites were. The obligation, the divine obligation rests on all of us. And so on this occasion, uh, God works this out upon the Israelites, but the, the lesson is really for all mankind. And so uh, Elijah prays here that, that, that the Israelites might know these people who had been called by God, these people who had been saved by God, these people who had been brought into a new land and established in a new, as a new nation, uh, these people who had reached the heights of the Davidic and the Solomonic reigns, where even their neighbors in the Near East were bringing tribute to Solomon because they could see the, the blessings that God had wrought on Solomon's head. And, uh, and uh, so the, the, these people who had reached such heights, heights had now fallen into the depths. They'd forgotten the Lord. And this sacrifice that Elijah was praying about being lit was, had a very distinct and clear purpose that the people might know 
that the God of Abraham and Isaac and God, he is the Lord, he is God. Um, uh, and uh, of course, this is what happened. And we see in verse 39, after the fire fell, the people the people had a real awakening at, at this time. So uh, Elijah raises this prayer that the clear identity of the Lord might be seen. Now we see two results from that. Um, we see in verse uh, 38 that the altar is consumed, and then we see this prophetic application upon the Baal prophets. Let's look at, first of all, the destruction of the altar. Uh, the whole point of this was that the, there was that the burnt offering would be consumed, that the burnt offering would be burnt. And so in verse 38, we see, uh, it says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood and the stones and the dust, it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and, and, and said, The Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. This was an amazing demonstration of the power of God. Not only was the sacrifice set on fire, not only was the wood set on fire so that the burnt offering was accepted or there was a demonstration that the burnt offering was accepted by God, but the wrath of God fell upon the whole area. And uh, everything was consumed in that place, even the stones that, he, that had been erected there we see this overwhelming demonstration of God's wrath. People in the world don't like to hear about God's wrath. They don't really think that God has a right to be wrathful. They respect their own holiness more than the holiness of the living God. And so they find fault with demonstrations like this when they come to the scriptures. But you see, God doesn't care what we think. God does his own thing. And that's one of the great lessons of this text. And so uh, everything was consumed here. And uh, when we think of this fire, we think of the purity of the fire that fell. Uh, we think of the intensity of it. We think of the effectiveness of it. See, this water that was upon the wood, it, uh, it was inconsequential compared with the, the purity of the wrath that fell upon this occasion. And um, the, the beauty of this is that that what uh, the, the, the wrath of God in this sense fell upon the fire and consumed it. We see the demonstration of his wrath. We see the holiness of his wrath. We see the perfection of his wrath. The beauty of it is that uh, it fell for Israel. It fell upon the sacrifice. Um, the Baal prophets, which we'll see next, the Baal prophets did not believe in the sacrifice. And so for them, God's wrath fell upon them. It's a wonderful example of how we need the Lord Jesus Christ. We need the wrath of God to fall upon him and not upon us. In this case, the wrath fell upon the Israeli altar, which represented Christ. But for those who didn't believe in that, which obviously the Baal prophets didn't, they had proliferated. They, they were, in terms of visible things, in terms of physical things, they were the magnificence of Israel, of the Northern Ten Tribe at this, at this time. They had proliferated. Their numbers had, had increased. Even the common people stuck around at night and pulled down the memorial stones of the, of the, uh, the altar at Bethel. You can see how far they had fallen into uh, disregard 
of the Lord. And so on this occasion, God's wrath falls upon this altar in a mighty theophany that was indisputable. And all of those pe these people that were doubters and skeptics and shouters against the name of the Lord a moment before, it says, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. God can work in this world in such a way and communicate to us in such a way that we are overwhelmed by his deity. We can see that whereas a moment before we were confused about who was God and who was something of the world, who was either a person of the world or a thing of the world. People are superstitious about these things today. If you go into the farthest reaches of the world, you'll find all of these animistic religions where people confuse the divine stuff with the things that God made. And on an occasion like this, there was no confusion. God cut through the confusion. He cut through the dust. He cut through the fog. He cut through the confusion. He said, I am God. I have done my thing here in this world. If you want to be saved, you'd better partake of the altar where my wrath falls upon the altar and not upon you. And so this was a tremendous demonstration of God's power where this consumptive fire fell upon uh, the altar. Uh, the second effect then was in the last verse, verse 40, and it's not... Um, it's not dramatically enhanced at all. Elijah says to the, to the people at the time, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. These were the, these were the people who had used the lie and the, confu the confused theology of the day to, uh, to uh, sow the seeds of confusion and false worship in the people of Israel at that day. These were the principles, you see. These were the, these were the instruments that Satan had used to, bef to befoul the northern ten tribes. Now we know that this, this was not done perfectly in the sense that Israel was so freed from this confusion that she then made an immediate 180 degree turn and uh, there was no need for Christ a thousand years later. <clears throat> we know that did not happen. But on this day, it did happen. On this day, the significance of God, the power of God, was seen and heard. And the people fell on their faces and admitted and confessed that Jehovah was God. The Lord, or Jehovah, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And uh, Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and they brought them down to the book the brook Kishon, and they executed them all there. So there was a there was a slaughter there of these priests of Baal. Today we have these ideas about freedom of religion, and that all religions are equally ultimate, and that uh, no one has a right to say anything here or there uh, about them. Well, to a degree, that's the place that you and I are at, but that's not the place where God is at. And on this occasion, he showed them what was going to be the final destination the final result of infidelity and false worship. Um, um, monotheism, the, mon the, the theism of the Lord is good. Polytheism, where you, you hold up, where you say that 
Uh, it, it doesn't matter that as many gods as there are in this world, there's, that's a wonderful diversity and they're all equally ultimate. That didn't work on this day. And uh, by these incidents like this, God prophesies about the final judgment, does he not? He tells us to be wise, O ye servants of men. Same thing on the day when the rains began to fall and the people of Noah's day were confused and they'd gone a hundred different directions, maybe a thousand different directions. The one direction they didn't go in was the direction of Noah and his family and their God because they thought that they were overly puritanical. Uh, overly exercised or overly sober about the things of the Lord. And then the rain began to fall. and the, It became a torrent. The people were flooded out of their homes. They ran to high ground, but then the waters rose. And they rose and they rose again, and people began to drown. And they cried out that the door of the ark would be opened. But the door was not open because in the day of the Lord, they had been, there had been preaching that it preceded this day where there had been warnings given by Noah. Noah was a preacher. And Noah preached his day, but his words fell on deaf ears until the rains began. And then people were all uh, quenched in the wrath of God, this time by water and not by fire. On this occasion of Elijah's day, it came by fire. And uh, there was this great demonstration of the power of God. <clears throat> now, um, I, I couldn't help thinking in this regard of the, the, the similarities between this and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ because uh, and, and it's, it says very plainly in the New Testament that Christ rebuilt the temple in, his own, in himself. It's like rebuilding the altar. Christ rebuilt that which had been ruined by years of misbehavior, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes. Our Lord Jesus built a, a new edifice and he said that, that the, uh, the edifice would be pulled down, speaking of both the temple and himself and uh, his destruction. And, uh, and uh, our Lord Jesus, much as the second point of the sermon where the, these, these incongruous things are done to the altar or the fire by Elijah, and you can see a similarity there with our Lord Jesus Christ because he comes to make this great sacrifice, but how does he come? Does he come uh, like a conquering Caesar? No, he comes as, the, as a, this innocent, weak lamb of God who, you know, you wouldn't think is going to be able to save anybody from anything. And finally, the world gets to do with him as they would, and they crucify him cruelly hatefully before the eyes of men. So we see a similarity there. And then in, in John 17, our Lord Jesus prays for the effectiveness of the sacrifice that he was going to make. He prays for the power of it, that all his people might be one, that, that all of those who are to be redeemed. He says, for many, I don't even pray for them, but for those who are to be redeemed by me, I pray for them. And he calls, he says, sanctify them with thy truth, O Lord, Father. Sanctify them with thy truth. And he goes to do what he's going to do. And then we see, and similar to Elijah, we see the, the results of these things. Yes, the water is damp and look like it, it looks like there's nothing going to take place on the altar. But our Lord Jesus Christ is raised up from the dead, isn't he? And then he's exalted above. He's, he ascends on high. 
And at Pentecost, uh, the power of God comes and begins to spread that kingdom far from the shores of Palestine, but all over the world. And so we see kind of some parallels here, and we see the the power of this, or we see at least the hints of this, uh, the the reign of Christ in the life of um, in the life of Elijah, and this incident there that happened on top of Mount Carmel, <clears throat> that is really glorious. Um, uh, it came to mind as I uh, as I saw this and uh, meditated upon it. I thought of uh, Matthew six thirty three or six thirty, where Jesus said, "Seek ye first the kingdom of God." And all of these things shall be added unto you. There had been a famine in the land before this. Elijah came. He does this stuff. and He slaughters the Baal priest. You notice uh, immediately after that, verse 41, Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up on top of Carmel. And then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and he said, there's nothing. And seven times he said, go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time. He said, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot, go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind. There was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded him up to his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So uh, after this conflagration where the priests of Baal are slaughtered, it's like the peace of God descends upon the land, and the blessings of God came, and the rains came, and so the famine, the drought and the famine were finally broken. So it will be with the Lord as he builds his kingdom here in this world. And we can rejoice uh, when, as the Lord uh, works. In this case, he worked with this wrath upon the priests of Baal. But as the Lord works with power in this world, he will also bring blessings like we see here with the end of the famine, or with the end of the drought. And he will bless the people of God and the whole world with his full redemption. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that we would that we would not be like those <clears throat> who hear and see thy power and then go back to our routines and forget the demonstrations that thou hast made in this world. We pray that we would not forget the demonstration of the exodus through out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. We pray that we would not forget the demonstration here on Mount Carmel where the priests of Baal <clears throat> were destroyed by the power of God. And we pray that we would not forget the demonstration of thy power in the resurrection where thou didst demonstrate that the righteousness of Christ was efficacious, that it could be efficacious for us, that though we are sinful, that we could be adorned with robes of righteousness and that the righteousness of Christ could be accredited to us and that we could stand before thy face, O Lord, and despite our sin, we could stand before thy face covered in thy righteousness, swallowed up by it, overwhelmed by it. 
so that thy eyes would only behold the righteousness of Christ worked out for us, enshrouding us in its folds. Bless us, O Lord, with thy power, whether negatively or positively. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.